once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. The Bible tells us that all God's people will be in heaven. If you won't fellowship with Christians that don't look or speak like you now, how are you going to enjoy it for eternity in heaven? Lead teacher Randy Pope continues the series, Greater Love, with the first part of a message entitled, One Family, which covers Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 10. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. I'd like to ask you, if you would, to stand with me in honor of the author of our text that we're about to read. I would like for us to stand, and we will read from Revelation chapter 7, just the two verses, verses 9 and 10, and this is a vision of John the Apostle as he is ushered into the throne room of God, and this is what we read in this text. After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Folks, this is a, this is a great text. We're going to walk into the very presence of this text. And we're going to see the implication it has on a subject matter that is incredibly important. So take your seats and let's dive right in. The series is entitled Greater Love. Our teaching team has done a fabulous job the last few weeks. If you've been here, you know, as they've dealt with loving the poor. I've had the privilege to listen online to each of the messages and just fantastic. I was just so proud, so honored. Uh, learned so much. I just thought it was so rich. Uh, did such a great job. Uh, these next four weeks, we're going to shift our attention just a little bit, and, and we're going to be looking at, at the same idea of, of a, a very, very great love, but as we would apply it particularly to people who are different from us, particularly as it has to do with race, not solely, but but we want to focus a bit on that one, is that's a very, very, very important issue that really, truly needs to be addressed. As most of you would understand, it is a, an emotionally charged subject matter. I, I dare say, I told Carol as, I was, uh, as we were coming back and I was talking about this week's message coming up that I've been preparing for, I, I said, you know, it's, uh, it, it, we're so vulnerable to misunderstanding. There's such extreme sensitivity in this realm right now. We're a sensitive people all across the nation. I mean, just read the news. Well, they said this, and this sounded like, and this hurt them, and, 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 and there's just now, there's, there's very few things as bad as potentially hurting somebody's feelings. And you can easily do that in what you say, and not necessarily because you've said something wrong, but it's viewed to be wrong, and I know that. I know I approached a, a very sensitive theological matter as we talked about in, in, in Romans and the, the, the teaching of God's sovereign choice and so forth and so on. And I, and I knew that there, there would be people that, that they're going to hear things. The big issue is not necessarily what, what you say is your teaching, particularly in an audience like most of you, but it's, it's what's heard very often because we have our presuppositions of belief 
And, and, and sometimes we hear something and we say, therefore, what you are saying is, where really that never crosses the mind of the speaker. We were with a, a, a group we invited in as our staff before I left, a group of, uh, of some very dear uh, friends that were uh, of different uh, races, and particularly some African-Americans, and one of them made a comment. And they said, you know, you just don't, don't use this word. And I think all of us, the others sat there and went, what's wrong with that word? Until they unpacked it a bit. I went, wow, we would have never known that. It wouldn't have been intentional, but... And then I found it very interesting that, that we were in another session uh, with another African-American who used that term over and over and over and over again, just as part of his, his and I went, wow, how do you even know? So it is a very, very challenging subject matter. I want you to know this, at Perimeter, this is not a political issue. We would never make this political. I know there are political implications of things that we have to make decisions politically what we believe and what we think should be done and so forth in light of this subject matter. But here at Perimeter, this is a theological issue. And it cannot, it cannot be avoided because we think maybe some people will think this is political. Maybe some people will think you can't do that. You've got to, we have to address this. It's so very important. I want you to know how important this is to your church's leadership. This is not just a Randy thing or a teaching team thing. This is our leadership. We really do. For the last two years at least, our staff has been meeting in lunches. Not all of our staff, but large numbers of our staff have been meeting in lunch after lunch after lunch, listening to key speakers address things, having people brought in, discussing, talking, interacting, and so forth. Our teaching team has done the same thing, bringing in people to say, help us learn, help us understand what we're facing, what, what's the, what are the issues, and so forth. And so we know that it's that important. Our officers, I happened to be at a, at a, a gathering of pastors, and we were as diverse a group as you will ever, ever meet of pastors from around Atlanta. And the pastor we just prayed for this morning, Crawford Loritz. He was speaking for about 15 minutes among a little panel, and he had about 15 minutes. And what he shared was profound. I said, Crawford, would you please, would you come and share that with our leadership? And he was so gracious, he did. And I told him, don't, don't hold back. You know, just you share what you believe and what is true, and, so, and let us, we'll make that decision. And he did. I'm telling you what. The moment he finished, and it was not contrived, it was not a few people kind of inspiring others, it was the minute he finished, that group rose in a standing ovation, and it just continued. And it was, it was our leadership saying, our heart is right what you have said. So, it is important. My study leave, you know, a, a, a fair amount of my time was spent immersing in the subject matter. And... Uh, I tell you, it's the old adage, you don't know what you don't know. And I didn't realize how much I didn't know. And I realize now how much more that I don't know. So we as a team, myself and the whole team, I'll tell you, we do not claim to be experts. We do not claim that. But we do know that there are implications in the social realm, there are implications in the political realm, but what we understand is the Word of God. 
And that's what our job is to do. And so we want to take you through a clear theological understanding of this very, very important issue. And then we all each make our own social and political judgments as to how you take the theology and you apply that in your understanding. And so I want to say one other thing and then I want to pray and we'll jump into this. But I, this was initiated, the idea of a series by one of our teaching members, uh, Bob Cargo, who so many of you know. Bob is so insightful and has such deep, tr oh, I'm just so honored to have a, him on a part of our team and so forth. And, and, uh, and, and so I invited him, we invited him to be our kind of coach this thing and kind of help us through. And, and he outlined so much of what you hear and, and was such a big part. I called him this week before and I said, man, I don't know how I'd preach this message without you and what you've done. And so uh, when you see him, uh, you, uh, you express your appreciation. He's done a great job. Let's pray though first, all right? Father in heaven, I'm going to ask you now that you would, you would so speak to our hearts that we would have a sense that, that we have been led here because of your word and what your word has to say and no other reason. We might be a people who say yes to whatever we see you saying. I pray as a result that your kingdom's going to come in a much richer way, even because your family at Perimeter has honored your truth. So blessed we pray now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, every, every family has a story. Some of the stories are not so good. Some of them are pretty interesting. Some of them are outstanding stories that we say, boy, I wish that were my story. But we all have different stories as families. It's also true that God, He has a family and His family has a story. It's a very important story. In fact, I'm going to go so far as to say, if we as His followers, as members of His family certainly those outside the family, but even those within the family, if we don't know the story pretty well, we will not, we'll never understand the importance of loving people who are very different and sometimes very offensive to our thinking, to our beliefs, and even as we address the subject matter of races. We'll never understand it. We just can't. So I'm going to make the story as simple as possible. I want to give you five chapter titles that we look at this week and next. We'll look at four this week, three very, very quickly. The fourth one we won't even touch till next week, but we will look very deeply in the fifth. The fifth has our text. And so I can't bring a text to every point. We'd be forever and ever, but I'll give you enough to, to kind of bring us to understand the bigger story. Here is the story just put up with the five chapters. I'd say, number one, the origin of God's family. Number two, the fracturing of God's family. The restoration of God's family. And there's where we're going to pause and we're going to skip the display of God's restored family. We'll move into the primary text and that is where we talk about the future of God's restored family. I, I, I want to say this. This is going to be a message. You follow along, and you'll say, yeah, uh-huh, got it, uh-huh, uh-huh. But you'll say, and, and what's the big deal? What's, what's this, how's this do with race? And at the end, you'll go, at least I sure hope so. You're going to go, oh, now I see. So let's hit the first very quickly, the origin of God's family. All right, God's plan. 
is to have one family. And you know his intention was to have his family be a happy family, a very royal family. One man, one woman makes it very clear in Acts 17. In fact, I'll put it up. The first half of the verse says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. There's one man. There's one man, there's one woman. It says we're made in his image. In the book of Genesis 9, verse 6, it says, for in the image of God, he created them male and female. So I know that many of you have to hear that, particularly you that are outside of understanding of faith at this point, or some of you that are brand new Christians, you say, you really do buy into this stuff, don't you? You're like, y'all really buy into this, this creation stuff? Well, not only would I say a very strong, yes, I buy into the creation stuff, I would put this challenge back. I've done it many, many times to many people. I say, I would just ask you this. Have you ever read, listened to, studied some people who are outstanding scientists, some of the brightest minds who are creationists. Have you ever heard why they believe such? And then I just say this, you take, you take what you hear there and what you think about evolution, that it just kind of came into existence, all the things you see today, you look at those two and you just ask this one question, which takes greater faith? It's not an issue of which takes faith, it's which takes the greater faith. And I'm going to say every time, I'm going to say, man, it just takes way too much faith for me to believe that it just happened. But you got to come to your conclusion. But those of us that hold to the teaching of God's Word and so forth, it's not without reason, but we certainly believe. We believe this. God's Word says it, that one family. And so I was with, listening to one of the guys that we brought in that we were talking to, uh, an African-American dear friend, great, uh, great pastor, and, uh, and he says, you know, we're all, we're all the same. We're, we're all genetically the same. I mean, virtually, we're, we're 99%, uh, you know, genetically the same. Well, which by the way, 50, 60 years ago, who would say true or false, but I know this, the church 60 years ago, for the most part, the white church would be saying, no, we're not the same. We're way different people. And he made this comment, we're genetically 99% the same. Well, I, I didn't doubt that it was true, but I wanted to verify before I might even comment as I'm doing. And so uh, many of you have heard me from time to time mention uh, my dear friend who, uh, a fellow named Tim Towns, he's one of the, the top geneticists of the world, literally. And I called him and I said, you're one of the great geneticists. Tell me, is it true? 99%. He said, well, it's understated. What do you mean? He said, well, you take the, the DNA ladder that's in a cell and, you know, you have the little rungs of the ladder. You, we call them steps. He said, there are three billion in a cell. Do you know how many of those? Do you know how many of those are, you know, as he said, a variation that makes us either whether we're going to be white or whether we're going to be, be black or whether we're going to be brown or whether we, you know what makes the difference? One rung. He said the percentage is amazing. Yeah, we're just, we're one people. That's the way God designed it to be, one happy family. So let's look at number two. The story moves quickly. The fracturing of God's family. 
Now, you know, most of you at least know the story of Genesis 3, the fall. Uh, you have Adam and Eve and their sin and the consequences of their sin. And now there's pain and suffering and heartache and all those things. You come to chapter 11, there's a story of the Tower of Babel. In the Tower of Babel, now the pride of man coming together with all of its abilities because we are in the image of God. And so with this incredible abilities that we have, nothing to compare to God, but it does reflect his image that God says, okay, uh, I know where this is headed. And so now there's the language barriers and the separation of peoples and differences of peoples and different cultures that come about as a result of that. And we have people that are so different. Now uh, you've got the birth of incredible, incredible conflict. It's a broken and fractured family. So we, I think, understand that. Let's move to number three. Number three is what we call the restoration of God's family. Now, the, for the family to be restored, there first is a promise. Uh, the promise of restoration is given early on in the book of Genesis chapter 12. And the first three verses, this is how it reads, this promise of this upcoming restoration. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, who we know now is Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and so you shall be a blessing. Here's the key. Look at verse 3. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's not, no, oh, I'll bless these people here. No, this is, it's coming. It's one, it's one blessing to one people. It's one family. No doubt about it. Now, there has to be a purchase, though, for that restoration because we're in sin. It's what we call the gospel, the good news of God. And so the restoration is seen in its purchase in two texts that I'd like to, to lead, lead you to. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 18, says this, he is also head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything, he being Christ. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself. How? Having made peace through the blood of his cross. You can see that over and over. The blood of the cross, the blood of the cross. That's how this happens. For there to be a restoration, Christ has to go to Calvary. And he declares us righteous as we find faith in him. And then it says, through him, I say whether things on earth or things in heaven, and, all, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Now, that's a great text and we can't break it down in detail, but I want you to follow with this text. This is the Apostle Paul again, this time in Ephesians 2, 13 through 16. Now, you have to understand the verses preceding this are talking about the whole issue of the Gentiles being brought in and the Jewish Gentile situation. And so it says in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who made both groups into one broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, 
so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, there it is, through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. So we have this enmity that separates us from God, but we also have a separation between these two groups. And if we think that the divide between black and white in this country and the racial tensions that come from all that, if we think that's bad, if you really can perceive the depth of the, of the enmity that existed between the Jew and the Gentile, it was horrific. And it was like, well, now we've got God's family and people of faith and, and the Jewish people of the past and the, and the Gentiles now. And uh, wow, what's going to happen now? And it was clash, clash, clash. That's why it's addressed so much in these texts. So we're going to skip number four. We'll come back to it. I'll say one quick word at the end, but we'll really address that in full next week. But we're going to skip to number five, which is the future of God's restored family. And this is where you will see how this so impacts this discussion about race, the future of God's restored family. Now, what we have in our text in Revelation 7 is somewhat of a portrait of the family. But it's the portrait of the grown-up family. So in the Pope family, if you just look at, at, at Carol and my family, not our past families, but just our family now, uh, we have four children. And somebody would just say to us, hey, show us a, a, a picture of your family. Well, we could show them a picture at, at one being born, you know, another one at two and a half and four, you know, six or eight, whatever the, the span uh, from one to eight years, we could show them that picture. It would be a portrait of our family, but it wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be a, a very clear portrait of, of what we are now. And in addition to that, I would rather show the portrait of our four kids now uh, because, I mean, technically, if, if I were to really dig in and think about that season of their lives, you know, we had a family, it was a good family, but you know, not all of our family members liked each other a whole lot. Do you know what I'm talking about? I mean, I mean, I don't think any of the kids would say, oh, I hate my brother, I hate my sister, but they would probably say, I don't like them. You know, I, I meet people, and even to this day, I can't get rid of it. I, I'll meet people and, and I'll see their kids and they're holding hands, they're hugging each other and they're walking together and they're laughing together. I said, looks like your kids really, really like each other a lot, huh? And no, they're hoping they're gonna say, no, nah, this is kind of they're putting on right now, you're here or something. But but when they go, they really do. They just love being together and just, oh. And I hate hearing that. I go, <laughs> I mean, you do. You go, what did I do wrong? I mean, you know, this is, where did we miss it? You know, I mean, and they weren't bad in that sense, but it could have been a lot better. I know that. And I'd much rather show now where when I see them together, I don't see them. I don't like you and you're this and you're, they like each other. So why not show the prettiest picture, huh? This is his most beautiful portrait of his family. And so I want to read it again. Verses 9 and 10, Revelation 7. It says, after these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues 
all of them, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, they've all been made righteous. Palm branches were in their hands, a time of peace. And they cry out with a loud voice. They know why they're the family they are. They cry out and they say, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the first text that we read earlier in Ephesians where it says that in order that he might present them, his church, before all a creation. This is the day. This is when he gets to take the portrait and say, I told you so, look at us. This is who we are. Now, there's still going to be differences. We read that from different tribes and and nations and so forth. We know that. There are going to be a lot of differences, a lot of diversity, but a glorious unity that exists in that final portrait. So here's the question. What precedes chapter 7? We read this about, okay, here's the present. What happens before that? Well, if you know the book of Revelation, you, you might know this, that the first three chapters are letters to seven churches and so forth. The, the revelation itself in terms of, the, uh, of what we're going to see that becomes so challenging the most as we read the book of Revelation really starts in chapter four. So, all right, so what happens in chapters four, five, and six? Here is the beauty of this chapter seven. Chapter four, it's all about the throne room of God. It's the Father seated on his throne. Just go home and read chapters four and five. I mean, it's amazing. Here's the, and the great throne room. When you turn to chapter five, this is the apostle John by vision, but he's being escorted into the throne room. And he comes into the throne room, and you know what he sees? He sees, he sees God on his throne. What an awe some experience. And, but he sees there, there's a book, and the book is closed. We're later to see that it's sealed with seven seals. That's tight. It can't be opened. And John knows, we now know, you know what it is, it's the book of God's decrees. It's the decrees of God who decrees all things, but he decrees them to the benefit of his people. And it's sealed shut. And it cannot be opened. You know, for it not to be opened means that it's not going to be executed. The events of this world will not be executed to the value and benefit of God's people. I mean, if it's not opened, then there is not going to be any future inheritance. There's not going to be a new heaven and a new earth. There's not going to be a protection in our time of trials, working things together for good. All of that out the window gone. And there's no one worthy to open that book. And in light of that, John sees it and he begins to weep. I mean, just to weep because he goes, this can't be. Now, all of God's decrees, they will not be executed to the benefit of us. And and so he, he, he bawls. Do you know that that's true of you and it's true of me when we live life with some kind of assumption, whether thought through or not, that 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 book is still sealed. It's still sealed. And therefore, all these terrible events that are happening in life, the hardships, the pain, the suffering, the death, all this stuff, it's, it just shows that God's, I don't know what, he's just, until we understand, no. Because what happens in that chapter, 
is that Jesus is going to walk in as the lamb who shed his blood. And he takes that book and one by one, he breaks the seals and he opens it up. When Christians get that, oh, they hate the suffering and pain, but they go, ah, the book has been opened. It's not sealed. Very important to understand. So in chapter six, you see the seals, they're divided. The first four are earthly perspective. The last three, you kind of look and see the, the eternal perspective. And I'll just put them up here, the, the seals. The first seal is Christ. It's the best news. You see, oh, Christ is the conqueror. He's shown as the conqueror as the first seal is open. The second seal, you see religious persecution. You go, wait, wait, wait. These, this book with his decrees include war, famine, and death. Yeah. So he opens it up and there's religious persecution. And then there's the next seal, number three, is the economic hardship. And then the fourth one, oh, death, which includes the pain and the suffering and everything we see in life. But then there's a shift to the heavenlies. And so now we see the sixth seal, and it's what we might call the martyr's cry. It's for retribution, not for their own sake because of what happened to them, but for the sake of Christ. And they're crying out on his behalf. And then we see the, the sixth seal, and it's that of Judgment Day, and Caleb hit on that one so well last week. But now we come to Revelation 7, our text. It's a parenthesis. This is a time for John and for all of us to be comforted. It's a reminder. It's just a parenthetical reminder. And the reminder is that we will be triumphant. We will be. And so those first eight verses that lead up to our text in verse 9, it's the sealing of the saints. You ought to read it. From this point on, no doubt we're all secure in him. We're complete. The family portrait is now finalized. And that's why we now go into Revelation 7, the two verses that are our text. That's when he takes the portrait and he shows it and says, here we are. People from every tongue, every tribe, every nation in perfect peace. Which, by the way, do you know what the seventh seal is? It comes in chapter 8. It is that, perfect peace. Eternal peace. There's the story. Now, it does raise the question as we close this out. What's that got to do with race now? Okay, there are people from every race there. What is it? What's the big deal? I want you to remember that there is a chapter that comes between the fracturing of the family and the future of the family. And it's rightly called the display of the family. And though I know it's next week, let me say this much about it. If you have a broken and fractured family in this world in which we live. If we are broken and we are fractured, I'll tell you this, it's look out for number one. The more broken and the more fractured, the more I'm gonna say, I don't care about you because I gotta watch out for me. That's what happens in broken and fractured people. The more broken we are, the more fractured we are, the more we look out for self. Unless by showing attention to someone else, we are helping ourselves. Let me tell you, it's about us one way or the other. And you add 
a large amount of adversity to somebody who's coming out of a broken family, out of a very, very broken family. And they're going to be like, it's going to be like a wounded animal that's been caged in the corner and can't find an escape. And it's going to lash out. It's going to do terrible things. It's going to be, I mean, as mean. It's going to be, they're going to do things you go, wow, look at this crazy animal. And then we see what happens in South Florida. And we read and our first thought has to be, how can anybody do something like that? How could they take a gun and shoot little kids, his peers? How can somebody do that? And then you and I understand, well, check out his past. Any brokenness, any fracture in his family? Oh my goodness. Not only is he like all of us, a sinner, broken in that way, but look at his family structure. Look what happened with his parents dying and this, that, and the other, and all the issues he's gone through. And he realized, this is not to say, hey, let's just forgive the guy, no big deal. Oh, it's his sin, no doubt about it. But you begin to understand that's what happens to broken, fractured people when big time adversity hits and they feel like I'm trapped. I don't know how to get out and they lash out and they do crazy, terrible things. Well, with that being the case, let me ask this question. What if, what if there were an exception among these broken, fractured people who are living under all this adversity, economic hardship, death, all this? What if there were, what if there were some people that were different? It's so different that they lived as one family and they had the ability to set aside their differences, the pain, the heartache, the things that have come about. And they would say, you know what, I'm going to set aside that. Who can do that except those that have the power of God? But what if there were a people who would do that and lived as a community? And what if as a result of that, what if the church became God's feature attraction? And that people would watch and they would see this unusual diversity yet unity. And they'd say, I want to know this Jesus. Jesus knew that's how this was going to work. That's why he said in John 13, I'll put it up, verse 35, he says, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples. How? Not if you keep my law and this, not if you do that. He says, if you just love one another. All people, of all tribes, of all nations, of all races. What if you were the unique attraction? I think it gives us an understanding of Jesus' prayer as he prayed it, as we know it, the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is now in heaven. Now let the kingdom come. So, my vision for the future of Perimeter Church, my vision is that two, three, four years down the road, there's going to be such a shift that's going to take place that this church will truly be able to reflect the community around us. And it won't be contrived. It won't be a program. It'll be relational love where you and I begin to think 
biblically about his family. And that all of a sudden his kingdom comes in this community. And people see this place and they say, it's amazing. Look, oh, there are, there are multicultural churches in which just a bunch of different cultures come together and stay together and long, that's it. Well, but no, it could be different. And just like we announced back at our 25th year, we said, you know what, we've got a good head and we've got a good heart, but our hands, we've got to add the hands. And it was like a flywheel. I kept saying, it's, let, just watch it over time. And now you see the community outreach, what's going on in this church and the love and the care for the poor and the hungry. Oh my goodness, it's incredible what's happening. And you mark my word, by God's grace, you're going to see that happen here. And there's going to be a unique portrait on this earth when God's kingdom comes. And people say, I want their Jesus because of their love one for the other. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, that's what we pray. We know it won't come without the shedding of your blood. It can't come without a restoration, a reconciliation with you. And we ask for those of us here not reconciled to you, may we see the work of Christ now and may we fall in love with him by your grace and now come into your kingdom surrendered. For those of us in your kingdom, we pray, Father, let that kingdom come. And would you show us our own hearts where we have had bias toward people in such a way that we've not loved well or we've had whatever the issue, that we would say, God, make us people who love all people well. And show us what that means for our church. Show us next week as we see what that might look like and how we get there. Grant that, we pray, in the great name of Christ our Savior. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.